In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to David Korshid about how state machines can help you write simpler, more resilient UI components. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 130. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wadden, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with David Korshid, otherwise known as David K. Piano, otherwise known as the State Machine Guy. How's it going, man? Great. Yeah, great to meet you, Adam. Yeah, you too. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. I, I read an article that you posted a couple of weeks back on uh, Dev.2 or Dev.to, I don't know how people say it out loud, um, called No Disabling a Button is Not App Logic, and... I thought it was really great because it really opened my eyes to some ways of thinking about how we can sort of implement, you know, pretty pretty common basic stuff that we do in user interfaces all the time in sort of a more uh, resilient way using some ideas that I've I've sort of typically relegated to sort of theory, you know what I mean, and not leveraged too much in real world um, applications. So. I thought if it's cool with you, it'd be uh, cool to talk about some of that stuff, sort of from first principles, working our way to uh, some more advanced concepts and, you know, see what sort of interesting stuff we can cover. Yeah, absolutely. So I think probably the best place to start would be um, just with the idea of state machines in general. Um, like I kind of said before, to me, a state machine is like, yeah, I learned about that in university in computer science class and then kind of quickly forgot about it and just went off building, you know, real things, not thinking that that was something that I would have to use day to day. And to this day, you know, it hasn't been something that I've bumped into day to day, but reading this article and seeing some of the stuff that you talk about, it's making me realize, you know what, like, this seems like a really powerful idea that can be leveraged in much simpler ways than maybe it sounds like at the outset. So how do you sort of like de- define a st- the idea of state machines or introduce that to people usually? Well, it's funny you say that because there's been many people who have asked me, like, hey, I learned about state machines in university, and it was usually around topics such as regular expressions or Turing machines mm-hmm. or basically how computers and circuits work and all of the things that don't really apply to what we do every day in web development. But uh, if you look at state machines and you, like, Google them, look them up on Wikipedia, you're going to get a lot of confusing information. And they're really a lot simpler than it sounds. State machines, or finite state machines, are around the idea that you could sort of divide your application state. And when I say states, I'm talking about some sort of status, like idle or loading or success. But you could divide it into these finite states, such as you know, just like I said, idle, loading, or success. Mm-hmm. And the way that we transition between those states is through events. So if we're in the idle state and some fetch event happens, now we're in the loading state. And the other main idea be to, uh, behind finite states is that these are deterministic. So when in, when a uh, fetch event happens in the idle state, you know you are always going to go to the loading states. You're never going to go to some other random states because then it would be a non-deterministic finite state machine, which is a whole other topic in itself. Got it. Okay. So I think um, maybe a good place to, to start with some of this stuff would maybe be to talk about maybe an example of how people normally implement some simple UI logic in a way that 
seems totally innocent enough that people, you know, just don't think about too much. And I think like a really common one is, you know, um, the loading Boolean, which (laughs) is sort of like your arch nemesis on Twitter, it seems like. Um, So, (laughs) oh, yeah, I could come up with an example, but maybe you have an example that that you think um, is a good one to, to, to sort of walk through. Like, is there a common situation that you use to sort of introduce people to these sorts of ideas and you know like maybe this is how maybe you're doing something right now and these are kind of the the issues with it and why switching to an approach that we can talk about in more detail might be beneficial well so i think the loading boolean is the most common and most readily accessible example because it exemplifies so many things that we work on every day in web developments because we have to fetch asynchronous data and that involves some sort of loading states Mm -hmm. but in general when you look at boolean values to handle state there's many many instances where they come up in places where they really shouldn't but it's pretty much the easiest approach Uh, For example, if you're implementing something with drag and drop, you might have an is dragging example. And so if is dragging is true, you know that you're in some state when you're dragging something. But if is dragging is false, what does that mean? Does that mean you haven't started dragging yet or you just finished dragging? And that's where it becomes a little bit confusing and where you have to think, oh, maybe I do need more than two states. I've even seen some articles where people we're like, don't you wish Boolean values had three values, like true, false, and maybe, or true, <laughs> false, and null, or something like that? It's like, no, you need you need a state machine for that. Cool. So I guess, like at its core, maybe like one of the the first ways to sort of talk about some of this stuff is it seems like in the examples I've seen from you, um, you basically are not using Boolean values to keep track of things in in general. Like at its simplest. And maybe there's more sophisticated ways to do this, but you're keeping track of the state of, say, um, a piece of your UI using some sort of label usually, right? Like whether that's a string, whether that's like an enumerated value. Um, But instead of having like loading equals true, you're going to have something like state equals loading or status equals loading. What, what's sort of like the best way like how do you normally keep track of that sort of thing is like just using a string good enough like that's always been something that i've seen and sort of felt like uh oh, something about this feels like too loose or something um but in practice right is it even a problem so that's a really good question actually because there is a little bit of a mental shift between using boolean values such as is loading is error is success and using these uh these enumerated values or you know, things like um, uh, loading as a string or success as a string. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason that you would want to use something like that, just ignoring the whole type safety question for a minute here, is that 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 really reinforces the fact that um, you could only be in one of these finite states at a time. Like your app can't be both loading and success or loading an error or idle an error or error and success, which I've seen a bunch of times. And I'm sure that you've run into apps too, right? Where you have seen some sort of screen with a loading spinner and you're like, well, my data's right there. Or my favorite example, you ever go on Reddit? Mm -hmm. You know, when you search for something on Reddit and it shows you no items found, sorry. And then it shows you all the items. Sure. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which one is it? Like you couldn't find it or you could because I definitely see them right there. Yeah. And so having a, a state represented as an enumerated value where you could have only one value at a time really reinforces the fact that you could only be in one of these states at a time. 
Now, so, as far as with the Reddit sorry. example, before, before like we go any further, I think that's actually pretty interesting. Um, I guess like what I'm sort of inferring from what you're saying there is like the bugs, the 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 class of bug that you have there is something like you can imagine that they've implemented that with something like a loading equals true or loading equals false. And it Mm -hmm. starts as loading equals false because they haven't kicked off the request to go and do the search. And in the template, it's saying if loading equals false and results equals empty array, then show this UI that says nothing could be found. Um, Because they're trying to sort of like uh, compute what this state that we're in is based on a bunch of these Boolean values. Whereas using the approach that we'll get into in more detail, you would probably have some, some label for some state that literally means like we haven't started yet. And knowing that is very different than knowing that there's not a request happening right now. And we don't have any results in this array of results that we want to store the data in. Right. And that's the, the, the core part of this is having that sort of label that labels the finite state, because like you said, and I'm sure that many listeners have experienced this too, when you have things like uh, loading false, success true, and you're trying to string all these Boolean values with uh, operators such as and or 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 whatever else, and trying to determine what state your machine is in, then it's much easier to give it a label. And it's also much less fragile because think about it. If you have a loading Boolean variable and you have a success Boolean variable and then error boolean variable uh, and you have more of those you're multiplying the number of states that your app could be in by two so that that becomes eight you add another one that's 16 possible states 32 64 etc when in reality your app might just be in five or seven states yeah 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 that makes sense so yeah if you have x number of boolean values you have to think about all the different combinations of those even though some of those might be impossible states or are supposed to be impossible states but because you're thinking in like a sort of boolean first mentality those states potentially can exist whereas if you're thinking like labels first then those can't exist and don't really matter right and that's why i say that when we develop applications we're already using state machines in a way because our application is already being represented in some sort of weird form by all of our boolean flags and things like that as being in some sort of state, but it's it's implicit, it's messy, and we have impossible states that we really shouldn't have in our application. So um, finite state machines just provides a way, like a set of constraints, to really organize that, both for the sake of the developer and their teammates that they're working with, and even people like the designers and project managers and things like that. Yeah, so I think maybe like one of the areas that people kind of intuitively resist ideas like this is just you know my component that i'm building is really simple really there's just like a loading state or not a loading state and because i've never built a component that was kind of powered by a state machine behind the scenes that sounds like some really complicated thing i'm going to be pulling in all this sort of overhead and just complex stuff just for something that could have just been a simple uh, boolean variable and i think what i learned from reading the blog post that i'll link in the show notes is that that's sort of like an unfair opinion because it turns out at least looking at the examples that you provided that it really doesn't have to be um very complicated at all so uh, maybe it would be useful to walk through like an example of 
of taking like a simple component that has like a loading boolean and, and what it might look like in practice to actually implement that using sort of like a more of a state first mentality i guess instead of thinking about things as booleans right so the easiest way to do this is just to ask yourself the question as you're developing these components what state is it in and what state can it be in so instead of having is loading as a variable for instance you could say it is in the loading state and so you would have some sort of status that's why i like using the variable status because status really sounds like what is the status of this and you hear it in everyday language with so many things like if someone asks what's your status it's like i'm busy or i'm available sure and you can't you can't be both available and busy mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah busy I mean, is true but available is also true so <laughs> yeah yeah that you know that that makes absolutely no sense um and so that's where i would start so instead of having that boolean variable just have a have a status one single status variable that describes all of the finite states so in a, in a very like in a very sort of explicit way like that's the difference between having like const loading equals use state true as the initial state of your component versus like const status equals use state string loading would right, that be kind yeah. of like the very most basic change that mm-hmm. you can make to kind of work towards this other approach Yes, exactly. And funny enough backend developers uh, would sometimes take this approach naturally. If you think about you're making a database field for your user, you wouldn't have a an is active column, right? You would have a status column sure. with active or inactive or deleted or something like that. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, what would kind of like the next step be? I'm trying to think of like, what would be a good example of something that maybe has like a loading state that could be like triggered by like an actual user action so that it's um, something a bit more interesting. Like maybe like something that's just like a, you're saving a form and the, f- the saving is happening asynchronously. And when someone clicks the button, you want that to turn into like a button with a loading spinner that's like disabled while it waits for the response to come back from the server saying like the, the save was successful. That's like a really right. common example, for example, where I would have yeah. used a loading Boolean in the past. Yeah, and, and that is a simple example and something that I exemplified in the article where you have this simple button that loads a dog. It fetches a dog and then it displays it. Uh, and we went over some of the bugs that might occur if you're just using Boolean values. But the next step in all of this is to think in terms of events. So the simple approach is Good for now, where you would change the status of something, where instead of idle, now I'm in loading, for example, when you're submitting a form, and you're obviously doing some sort of set state in order to directly change that value from loading to success or from loading to error. But instead of that, the next thing to think about is what can transition the states? And that thing is an event, an event that either occurs from the user or from something internal like the result of a promise or some other signal but everything through events. So instead of uh, having like an on-click event handler on the submit or on submit on the form saying, okay, change the status to loading and things like that. Instead, you would send an event somewhere. And that somewhere is a key question. Okay, so yeah, let's let's dive into that a little bit more. I think um, maybe like a good thing to to sort of like set the stage with that I think is an important distinction. And and this was what was important for me. What I, what I really internalized reading this article was I think the way that a lot of people are writing 
sort of like their action code say like when something happens the user clicks something whatever um they like you mentioned they have like a, an event handler there on click run this function that i've defined somewhere and the first thing they do in that function is sort of start checking a bunch of boolean variables to sort of determine what they should do based on the current state right so it's sort of like mm-hmm. the action is being defined but it's sort of the action's job to check all these weird boolean combinations or whatever and determine like if it's sort of safe to do um, what you want to do and i think that's where like this logic ends up being really complex a lot of time but with the approach that, that you're talking about in my head i think of it as sort of like inverted now where it's yeah. like instead of an action trying to determine what it's supposed to do based on some state it's like the state is determining what actions are allowed and what actions to run based on um the current state and like what the user's intent was and you can sort of like filter out like no op actions really easily this way or sort of things that aren't really allowed to happen so um i think you'd Mm -hmm. be a better person to sort of explain this than me so why don't you kind of give your best shot at it i guess yeah yeah for for a lot of people what you just said is the the got you the the aha moments you know with all of this where instead the action's doing all the heavy lifting and this this makes me happy. Hopefully it makes other developers happy, but your event listeners should really only be a single line of code. Those should be the smallest parts of your code because all your event handlers should ever do is send an event somewhere. So they should delegate like, hey, this is what the user wants to do. They want to submit a form because they click the form submit button. It doesn't matter if we're already loading, if the form's already submitted, if there's validation errors, does not matter. We're just sending a submit event and something else will handle that. Yeah. So do do you think it's worth like sort of talking about the, or clearing up maybe like the difference between what someone thinks of as, as an event typically versus like what you mean as an event or do, or do you personally not see a difference? Cause to me, I think it can be a little bit confusing to think like, okay, on click. Like, yeah, that's like mm -hmm. an, an event. That's like being fired by the Dom when like I click the button. Right. But like, um, someone trying to like save a form or something using sort of like your domain specific language for your application um, is like a, sort of a different class of, of event. It's you could think of it as like an action maybe, even though I think I, I think you definitely prefer like event as terminology, but in terms of trying to sort of draw the distinction between what maybe people think of as like regular plain old JavaScript events and like events in sort of a state machine context. Right. Well, uh, in fact, those could be the exact same thing. And there have been many times where I used the native DOM events directly in my state machine because it was the easiest thing hmm, to do. Interesting. Uh, so events are events are events. They're just data, data that's sent from one entity to another entity. And uh, when we change an event, such as a like if we have an on-click handler on the submit button, if we change that to a submit event, those two things, both the, the mouse click events from the DOM and the special submit form events that we that we designate for that, those are essentially the same thing. It's just we're giving a different name. And that's for the sake of developers. Got it. And so, yeah, it, it, for example, it's like um, I, uh, I have a dog. And if you have a dog, you might know this too. But if you like let's say, pour food into their bowl, then they'll come running to it. And so you might think the event that just happened was I poured food into a bowl and to the dog, they they don't really have a concept of, of, you know, food and bowl making a sound together. They just know there's this weird sound that happens. And whenever that sound happens, I know that there's going to be food somewhere. So 
uh, they, they're translating the events into their own domain. Mm-hmm. We have our own way of expressing that exact same event. And so uh, these events or signals or messages or whatever you want to call them, it's just it's just message passing between entities, like saying what the intent is. And so you could use the native event or you could like translate that into something that's more readable for developers. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Tuple. So years ago, I used to use this app all the time called Screen Hero that let me quickly hop on a screen sharing call with a friend or coworker whenever we needed to pair program on a new feature or fix a bug, stuff like that. Eventually, Screen Hero got acquired by Slack, who promptly shut it down and released their own way worse version built into the bloated resource swallowing black hole that is their Electron app. So after this happened, I spent literally years suffering through either web-based alternatives that had terrible performance or enterprisey meetings slash webinar slash conferencing software that fill my screen with all these unhideable annoying pop-ups and toolbars and then Ah, my friend Ben Ornstein and his buddies Joel and Spencer released Tuple, the absolute best pair programming app I have ever used. Here's why I love it. Number one, it's written in C++, so it is fast as hell with no electron overhead. Number two, it stays out of the way. There are no annoying pinned windows covering up all the tools I'm actually trying to use, like my text editor. Uh, Tuple itself is completely invisible, except for a little icon in the menu bar. Uh, Number three, I can start a call with someone in my contact list in literally one click so I don't have to create a meeting and then send around a URL or send invitations via email or any of that slow annoying crap. Number four the remote control experience is actually even better than Screen Hero so they've done all sorts of clever optimizations in Tuple to make interacting with your pair's computer feel incredibly fast and responsive like being really clever about detecting the mouse position on your computer instead of on the pair's computer so there's no visible lag. All sorts of little details like that that you'll notice that make the experience feel really great. Uh, Number five, it's actually built for pair programming, not for webinars or meetings or conferencing, whatever the hell that is. It's loaded with all sorts of little details that make the pairing experience really great, like quickly drawing something on the other person's screen with a little pen tool, like maybe you want to draw a circle around something to get someone's attention in a certain place, or just click on something and have a little halo show up so you can point out a specific part of the screen, or even being able to copy a URL on your own computer and have that automatically appear in the clipboard for the person that you're pairing with so they can quickly jump to some documentation that you guys want to read together. So I was literally the very first customer that paid for Tuple when it was released in 2018 and I have been a happy customer ever since. If your team does any pair programming at all, and you should because it's by far the most productive way I've ever found to build software, uh, you should 100% visit tuple.app and sign up for a free two-week trial to test it out. I promise you won't be disappointed. Thanks again to Tubal for sponsoring Full Stack Radio this week. Back to the show. Okay, so in the example that we're talking about where where maybe you have a form with a save button that needs to submit some AJAX request to save mm-hmm. the data of this form asynchronously. In the simplest, like, no library sort of way, uh, if we're trying to, like, send this event to this like mystical thing that's going to actually do the the work for us now. So we have this on click event on the button, or maybe we have like an on submit event on the, the form element, like for the purposes of this discussion, that's mm-hmm. not really important, I guess. Um, instead of doing what you would normally do, which is directly call some function that says like fetch with post to whatever um, you're going to do something that's like a lot 
more just information, right? Like just like right. sending some data somewhere. So, so what might that like data be in this case? And then let's talk a little bit about like where you're sending it to and how that thing is going to work and actually do the work that you, you really want to happen in this situation. So the data could very much be a simple object with the type. So just like you would think of Redux actions if you use Redux or even native DOM events, those also have a type as well. So that is going to be sent to that somewhere. And that somewhere, just for the sake of argument, let's say it's a function, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so that function, just like, you know, you might be familiar with Redux or NGRX or things like that, where you have the current state and that current state is being held somewhere. And then you have the event that you received. And then all that function's job is to do is determine what's the next state based on this date and event. Mm -hmm. And so that, that would be the function that orchestrates this sure. entire thing. Got it. Okay. So, so we're sending like an object somewhere that has like a type in, in this case, like how would you name something like this typically? Like something that is going to basically try to trigger a save of this form. Do you use like, like an event name, like, form saved or like is it more like present tense like what's your kind of preference for naming these sorts of things so my preference and the preference of a lot of literature that has uh you know yeah like the idea of using message passing in events for this sort of thing is all over microservice architecture and things like that so in general the event is what just occurred in the past and optionally what is the intent behind what just occurred okay so um you you might have a generic event that says button clicked and even though that fulfills the past tense what just occurred requirement it might not be descriptive enough to say why what did the user want to do and so uh you might instead have a dog requested Okay. Sure. Yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah. So, so an event describes what happened in the past, and that's so, why. So, I, even though that was like different from like the way events are typically named, like in like the DOM, you would still use like that sort of, you know, ed suffix approach, like clicked well, yeah. versus like click. Exactly, and here's the reason why. And this is a, this is one of the biggest fallacies of how people usually do things in Redux or e even things just in normal development. Mm -hmm is when you have something that's sort of imperative, like do this, and you know, imperative is already a bad word in this <laughs> sort of uh, scenario, but well, when you have something that's do this, if that thing isn't done, that indicates a failure of that events being sent. So for example, if I have a, an on submit or a button where you click it and it's supposed to fetch data, I might be tempted to uh, say fetch data, or if I have a field where on change update username, I might have an event that says update username. And that to me and to any developer working on it means I expect the username to be updated when this action is submitted. However, that might fail and that's supposed to fail. For example, let's say that you're saving a user and the for some reason the field's not disabled, so you uh, have update username and that action does not update the username, then that's a poorly, uh, poorly named event because it doesn't describe what just happened. What so just what, happened so what, was yeah, the, yeah. What would you call it? Uh, user or username changed, or something but like that. Does that describe something that just happened? Because like, if it didn't actually change, then did it actually just happen? Or well, well, the the, the username fields changed. 
Gotcha. So the username field changed, but the the reducer or the the state machine um, would say, "Okay, I I understand that the field changed, but I'm not going to do anything with that event." Yeah, got it. So you could even think of it maybe as like, like, tell me if this makes sense. Um, if you had an event that was, if you were going to be really descriptive, it could be like username update submitted or something like someone's attempting yeah. to do something like, but whether that happens or not is really can't be determined until later. Right. Right. Or, or using a simple verb like username changed, uh, where you, you would understand that those events are coming from the domain of the user interface mm-hmm. and not the domain of the database yeah, yeah. or something gotcha. like that. That makes sense. Okay. So we're, we're sending, uh, in this case, we're, we're just sending this event somewhere. And this event in this case is just a simple object with a type, um, mm-hmm. that's like form saved or something like that. Right. right. And, um, this is going somewhere now and something mm-hmm. is going to do some work to actually try and finally like make this fetch request that we're, we're trying to do all along. So what at its simplest, like no library approach might like the shape of this function look like that receives these events. So the function in, if we look back in history and just see how people have typically implemented state machines in languages such as C or C plus plus or anything, it's a lot of switch statements, okay. which makes sense if you're used to... I, I keep bringing up Redux just because it's sort of this half of a state machine approach. Uh, it, it has a switch statement where it takes whatever events just occurred, they call it actions, yeah. but it's really events, and it determines what the next state is based on that state and events. And so you could use switch statements to do the same thing with finite state machines, except the difference is that you're determining it based on the state and then the event. Yeah. So if, if I'm in the idle state and a like fetch request event happened where it's like uh, user fetched or something like that, and uh, we take that event and uh, we determine on the idle state, now we're going to the loading state. And we might attach extra data like here's the user that you know they want and uh, things like that. Got it. So- and so the... Yeah, so the main difference, I guess, in how people would normally think about this is it's, it's easy to assume that the, the way that this function is shaped is there's a switch statement and you're switching on the event that came in and checking, like, mm-hmm. case form saved. Well, here's the logic that should happen when a form saved event was received. But, it's, but right. like, the really crucial thing that, like, changes this whole game that makes this, like, so, such an interesting different way to think about things is that instead of switching on the event type, the very first thing you're doing is switching on the state. So even though the event yeah. is what's coming in as a parameter, you're not thinking, okay, well, let's inspect the event and see what we're supposed to do. The first thing you do is check, like, okay, before we do any work, let's see what state we're in and see and kind of like scope the potential outcomes of this function to whatever's like defined in that bucket first. So you'll exactly. do, you do something like switch, state, case, mm-hmm. idle, now is when you start thinking about inspecting the event. Is that right? Right, right. yeah, yeah. And just for sake of argument, let's pretend that this magical function reducer thing that takes both the state and event and determines what the next state is, let's assume that that was the actual fun- function that's executing these side effects such as actually fetching the data. Yeah, just to keep things simple and like right. being able to picture it so all in one place. The, the typical mistake would be if someone has a, you know for the sake of argument, a fetch user event. And it's like, okay, whenever this fetch user event happens, let's send a fetch request. 
But right now, we made the mistake that no matter when that event happens, we're going to go fetch our user. And so what if we're already in the process of fetching a user or in the state of loading? Then uh, you, you can imagine this as a user just clicking a button a hundred times yeah, yeah, really, yeah. really quickly, is that, that that request is going to be made so many times simultaneously. And that could that, that's something that you definitely want to avoid, you know, prevent... Uh, you know, strain on the server and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we would normally do as developers is stick an if statement in there. And so now instead of having cleanly separated, here's our states, here's the events that could uh, cause a transition with each state, we're saying here's an event and here's a whole bunch of if else if statements that are just guarding our logic because we forgot an edge case that and these edge cases are, by the way, made impossible by these uh, by the very structure of a state machine, where it's impossible to have a transition if the event transition isn't defined. For example, if we're on the loading states, and we determine that, or we specify that we could only have two transitions, either a success or a failure, then so it doesn't. But, but before we get into that, actually, like I think. Mm-hmm. We should probably define like what you mean by transition because I don't think we've uh, oh, okay. talked about that yet. Right, right. So the building blocks of a state machine, we have these finite states that we've been talking about and these events that we've been talking about. But a transition is what connects states together. So to go from one state to the next state based on an event, that's what a transition is. Mm-hmm. Got it. So if you're sleeping and an alarm goes off, like the event's alarm happens... Now you're awake. Yeah. So something has to cause you to transition from sleeping to awake. Got it. So let's say that you're in a loading state and you have only two events defined. You have a success and an error event, and those will transition to a resolved or rejected state. And in, and in this case, those like success and error, that's like the the request like succeeded that we were loading or the, exactly. that request failed. Yeah. Exactly. So... If we wanted to prevent the case of a, a fetch request happening during loading, we don't have to do anything because that event is not defined anywhere in our loading state. So we could just say, uh, we're going to ignore any events that uh, we didn't define here. Yeah. So for the listeners who are trying to picture this in their head, if you think about this function as having like a top level switch statement that's first checking the state and maybe for this example, our two states are just like idle and loading, say, is that reasonable? Yeah. So if in this idle state, um, in that like case block of this switch statement, you might have another switch statement, which is switching on like the event now. And Mm -hmm. here, these cases are where you're going to list all of the events that are like valid events to happen during an idle state. So maybe there's like 10 total events that can happen in this component, but only five of them are things that are valid to occur during an idle state where you're only going to have five case statements there. And if any of those other five Mm -hmm. events happen, well, first the switch statement is going to see, okay, well, we're in the idle state. So that means we're going to drop down to this block. And now we're going to check the event type and we're going to see some event that we don't handle during the idle state. So it's not going to match any of the case statements. And that's just going to be the end of it. You didn't even have to do anything. The machine just basically prevents you from having to even think about that edge case just magically. And it's so simple, but it's (laughs) so interesting. It it is simple, but it's a lot of structure. But 
the idea is naturally reducing the scope of what can happen in any given state. Just because, I mean, that's how, that's how everything naturally is. If I'm sleeping, there's only so many things I could do. Yeah. If I'm awake, you know. <laughs> so I think maybe like one interesting example that you sort of alluded to that can sort of help people think about how this stuff can be more interesting and useful. You talked about like the idea of having some component where I'm pressing a button triggers like fetching something right mm-hmm. and while that fetching is happening now you're going to be in a loading state but if nothing is currently fetching then you're going to be in an idle state but maybe it's still possible to click that button while you're already loading something else like like you said something that like gets like a, a random image from a, a server or something exactly so you hit this button puts you into a loading state you hit it again um now I think what's interesting about this example is you might want to do something different because you're already in a loading state versus mm-hmm. being in the idle state rather than just like uh, ignoring the event. Like we've already talked about sort of like the automatically just basically no op events that just don't matter. But I think there are definitely situations where like the same event could require different logic based on the current state, which is the sort of thing that I think you easily find yourself missing those situations if you haven't structured things in this sort of like state first way. So in this case, would that be like something like maybe you're keeping track of this, like the active request and you want to like cancel it, for example, before you fetch the next one. Um, if you're right. clicking the yeah. button while you're already in a loading state. Yeah. And, and you could definitely have that sort of custom logic too. And having things in this state machine sort of way allows you to control that directly instead of via if then statements or, via having all this logic within the action handlers, which is problematic for, you know, so many reasons. But. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty interesting. So I think what's interesting about like what we've talked about, at least up to this point is that all these ideas can be implemented like pretty easily with uh, sure a little bit of boilerplate and structure, but without mm-hmm. having to like pull in some library. Like I think like the idea of a state machine, like just the terminology makes it sound like it's this like heavy thing when really it's just like this mindset of some nested switch statements where you always make sure you check the state first at its very simplest. Like I think it's probably likely that if you're using this approach throughout your application, um, you're going to quickly find yourself like, not wanting to repeat the same stuff over and over again and figuring out ways to maybe make it more ergonomic or, or maybe there's like some advanced ideas that are more complicated to just like implement from scratch every single time. Um, but it is really interesting to me that you can like implement this methodology at least with, with nothing sophisticated really in terms of the code. Exactly. And that's why, uh, in virtually every single language since every single language is essentially a state machine itself. I mean, if you think about regex, it's just a state machine, but that's besides the point. But uh, mostly every single language, if not every single language, has this idea of a switch case or a structure where, depending on what you have, you could match that and get something else. Um, so it might not be switch case exactly it might be pattern matching but you still have that same core idea in all of these uh languages and so that's why the idea of state machines is pretty universal 
Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is DigitalOcean. So DigitalOcean is a simple, developer-friendly cloud platform optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. Uh, I've personally been a customer of DigitalOcean for about five years, and I use them to host all of my server-side projects, like my custom course platform, for example, which is built with Laravel. A lot of the guests that I've had on the show in the past are DigitalOcean customers as well. Uh, For example, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, he uses DigitalOcean to host Envoyer and Laravel Forge, and Jeffrey Way actually uses DigitalOcean to host Laracast as well. Uh, One of DigitalOcean's newest features that I'm personally really excited about is managed databases, uh, which lets you spin up a completely managed database server so you don't have to worry about anything like backups, uh, managing read-only replicas, or just general server maintenance. Now, DigitalOcean is already an extremely affordable service. You can spin up a server for as little as $5 a month, but they've been kind enough to offer a free $50 credit to Full Stack Radio listeners. So head over to do.co slash full stack, all one word, to claim your $50 credit. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. Is there any other like ideas around this stuff in general outside of some of the more basic things we've talked about that you typically find are really exciting to people like when they're first like exposed to them or um you know, you know like any ideas around the stuff that you say like okay well now that you understand this like think about this situation you know anything yeah. that sort of gets people thinking oh wow that makes this so much easier too that maybe someone like myself who's only really been exposed to this mm-hmm. stuff at a superficial level so far wouldn't uh, be familiar with yeah so Talking about like loading success and all of these basic use cases for state machines is just the very tip of the tip of the iceberg. So if we go into more complex logics, such as let's say that we want to handle cancellation, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that's already a very difficult thing to do in any sort of framework, either front end or back end that you do is like, uh, how do we cancel this in-flight request? And that, I mean, that's just an event in a state machine. So you have a cancel event and that might take you to some states where you completely ignore any success response. And then uh, even if something is in flight, if it comes back with data, it's like, hey, sorry, our doors are locked. We're not accepting any new responses at this time. Thank you. So um, the, there's that. And then you you begin to discover that there's so many other patterns, even for something as simple as data fetching. For example, uh, if you want to keep track of retries, like let's say that uh, if a request fails, you're only allowed to retry five times. You need some way to keep track of that. Or if you want to do uh, throttling, debouncing, circuit breaker patterns, which are also really, really interesting. And all of these more advanced patterns that isn't easily expressed in code, but is easily expressed in some sort of boxes and arrows diagram such as state machines. But uh, that brings me to my other point, like as far as interesting things, even going beyond the code, these state machines can be visualized and they have been visualized for for more than half a century. Honestly, you could look at papers dating back from the 1950s, 1960s, where people do visualize these state machines. And that's essentially what they are, just boxes and arrows <laughs> connecting each other. And... Um, with with state machines, you could um, you could construct them visually, and you could even derive them visually from. Uh, it might be a little bit harder from source code if you're using nested switch statements, but there are ways in libraries for defining state machines where you could just 
copy and paste that code and have it visualized and be able to simulate the state machine right there in your browser. Interesting. So what are the kind of the benefits of having it visualized? Uh, it, th- there are so many. Like uh, Staring at code is you know only so fun up until points, but uh, well, when you can actually see your logic and see how everything is connected together, that's the, it becomes much more clear for everyone involved how your code is supposed to work together. Uh, otherwise, all of your logic becomes scattered around so many different components and files in your system. Uh, and besides that, having a visual overview of your logic makes it easy to spot defects, such as, let's say that you're transitioning to a state where you can't transition out of. Then you think, oh, my user is going to be stuck in this state. And the, the really funny thing about that, too, is um, you might think, okay, well, they might be stuck in that state, but I've never gotten any bug reports about it. You know why they haven't gotten any bug reports? Because they just restart their app. Sure, yeah. They, they, they don't bother filing a bug report. They're like, I'm stuck. Let me close and reopen it. This happens all the time, and developers like us were never aware of it. Yeah, even just thinking about this stuff has me thinking about, like, maybe, like, one thing we haven't gone into is, like, where where should these state machines sort of live in like the hierarchy of like your, of your application? We've sort of been talking Mm -hmm. about in the context of just like one simple single component. Um, But do you have a lot of like situations where you have sort of like nested state machines or maybe this component has like a state machine managing its state, but this component is really part of a tree that also has like some shared state that lives on like a react context or something like that. Mm -hmm. And there's, some state machine responsible for managing the state there. Like, I'm not even sure like what my question is. It just sounds like there's interesting things <laughs> yeah. there and that it could be complicated. Yeah, like basically, mm-hmm. how do you compose your state machines and how do you, yeah. uh, like, you can just do all that. So this is something that really deviates from, for example, Redux uh, in, in how we organize our state in our application. Instead of viewing it as one big global atomic thing where everything goes to the central place and then is spread out through all the components, instead we think about our application state as being distributed. Because our applications, whether it's front-end or back-end or IoT or whatever, they are naturally distributed. And everything in some way or another is communicating uh, via messages. So the answer to your question is we, we don't make state machines bigger. Instead, we separate things by entities, so, you know, by their domain, and everything has their little bit of logic. And so these things just communicate with each other by, well, by sending events. Got it. Yeah, it makes sense. I think it's something I'll have to play with to really to really sort of understand um, how, how it all comes together and, and run into mm-hmm. some interesting situations. So I think maybe like the last o- overarching topic that I want to get into was we've sort of been talking about everything from this perspective of just like doing everything from scratch in like a simple way. Um, but you also uh, at least maintain maybe originally authored like the X state mm-hmm. library for, for JavaScript, which is sort of like a pre-baked implementation that looks like it supports a lot of um, complex functionality yeah. to help people use state machines mm-hmm. um, without having to kind of do everything from scratch. So I'd be curious to learn more about um, sort of the X8 library and what sort of benefits it offers uh, versus just like using some nested switch statements like we sort of been talking about. Yeah. So I I first started thinking about 
what a library could look like if we didn't have to write all of those nested switch statements. And <laughs> I started thinking about there might be some nice sort of object syntax for this and everything. And so that's where I created xState, where instead of these nested switch statements, you define your state machines as these nested objects. And of course, if you, if you were to try to do this yourself for simple state machines, you could write a very tiny implementation. You don't need a library for that either. You could just, it's a map lookup, you know, an object lookup. Um, but xState does so much more than that because xState is for state machines and state charts. And we haven't really gotten into state charts, but that's a whole other topic. In essence, you could think of state charts as nested or hierarchical state machines with so many other features. Uh, but and state charts are something that were invented by David Harrell in 1989. So it's also an older concept. And uh, there's a lot of complex things and some gnarly algorithms that were used to, to, to implement state charts. And that's what xState solves too. So uh, xState just makes it so that you could define your state machines and state charts in this big object. And then you could, um, you could subscribe to state changes on that object if you interpret it. Uh, basically, that object becomes sort of a, a live service that you could subscribe to so that whenever you send an event to it and a state change happens, you could listen to that state and use it wherever you want to use your state machine, whether it's in your front end application, back end, whatever. Got it. So um, do you think it's worth like talking a little bit about the um, sort of like the syntax exposed to you by xState and how it kind of compares to, to what we've talked about so far? Sure. Yeah. So the the machine configuration, if you think about a nested switch statement, this sort of parallels that we have an object which, among other things, has a states property. And that states property, you just define all of your states in this object, such as idle loading success. And then in each one of those states, you have another object with an on property. And in that on property, you define events that could happen within that state. So if I'm in the idle state, then on fetch, then I'm in the loading state. And you could specify that as a string or an object, but you just say that here's the mapping of my transitions in my state machine. Okay. And it's it's a much shorter syntax than having to do it, you know, with switch statements. Yeah. So what about like the actual um, side effects that have to happen? Like where when you're transitioning from one state to another based on a specific event, where does that kind of get defined and live? That gets defined right next to the, the target state that it's called. Um, so for example, if we have idle and then on fetch, our target is the loading state. So we go from idle to loading, but let's say we also want to fetch the user. So there's an actions property where you put fetch user. And so you say, if I'm in the idle state and the fetch event happens, then my next state will be status of loading and the actions will be here's all the side effects that need to happen. So in a way, it just says here's a declarative representation of all the side effects that need to be executed when you transition to this state. Gotcha. How does that stuff um, work with like asynchronous stuff? Like if, if you have like, you're in state A, some event happens to transition mm -hmm. you to state B, but you don't want to actually like be in state B until like some asynchronous thing has finished. Um, is that, I guess that would be three states normally because you have exactly. to kind of capture the... 
See, you, yeah, you get the idea. So uh, a few people early on were asking me, like, hey, how do I do, uh, you know, I, I know that it just determines what the next state is synchronously, but how do I do async stuff where I don't know the state uh, until I receive some data? And I'm like, well, that turned from two states to three. And mm -hmm. that's all there is. And so that fits exactly within the whole state machine model. And that's so then, so then what would happen is like you would define some new state in between like states A and B, which is now like your loading state because exactly. you're waiting for something to happen before you can truly mm -hmm. be in state B. And right. you're going to define some action that happens. So on like the transition from state A to the loading state, um, you're going to say like, I guess I'm looking at the syntax on the website now. So you'd have like mm -hmm. target loading and yeah. action would be like fetch random image or whatever. Exactly. And that fetch random image function in it's like, in like the then callback say for whatever promise it fires off or whatever is going to invoke like another state change or set sorry i guess send another event it's going um, to send in the same machine yep everything gotcha. is done by sending events and so good compare this to by the way compare this to like async await people could just say like oh why i could just use async awaits to do that and so if i said what if an error happens then they'll be like oh well i'll just wrap the async await in the try catch but then if I say, what if some intermediate event needs to happen, like a cancel event, then that becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to describe in a typical async await flow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really interesting. Well, I think um, I think that's basically all the questions I have for you. We've been going for almost an hour now, so maybe it's a good time to, to start wrapping up. But uh, maybe just to finish off, where would you uh, point people to if they wanted to learn uh, more about this stuff and, and maybe wanted to find some more examples that um were relatable to them and like the sorts of work that they normally do versus maybe some of the more theoretical literature that they might stumble across if they start at wikipedia for example mm -hmm. well i highly recommend the theoretical literature uh by david harrell it's um state charts comp um I, I forget what the full title is but it's his original paper on state charts it's full of illustrations and actually really easy to read in terms of uh research papers so there's that, and there's also a very easily digestible resource by Eric Mogensen, who's been talking about this for longer than I have, called The World of State Charts, and that's at statecharts.github.io. Besides that, there's also the XState documentation at xstate.js.org slash docs, and there is the Spectrum community at spectrum.chat slash statecharts. Awesome. Well, thanks so much um, for taking the time to talk to me about this stuff. What's the best way for people to sort of keep up with you and, and follow some of the work that you're doing in this space? I'm at David K. Piano pretty much everywhere, Twitter, GitHub, anywhere. Awesome. Well, thanks again, man. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for having me. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with David about state machines. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, you can find them at fullstackradio.com slash 130. Thanks to Tuple and DigitalOcean for sponsoring the podcast this week, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>